Hi everybody, welcome to another episode of the Feel Your Fan of the Podcast. My name is Saint. And I am Jim. And we want to welcome you back to this thing that we love to do so very much. We hope that you guys are having a great week. Uh, I know we've been uh, doing pretty good. Uh, we had a conversation last week. We got to talk with uh, uh, Jeff Ayers from Death Wish Coffee. And boy, I, I just want to reiterate again how cool that dude was. That ah, was he really, really was. fun. Such a great conversation. Yeah. Such a great guy. Really wide-ranging. Absolutely. And for all of y'all that were listening and, and for all of y'all that might not have caught it, uh, if you go to deathwishcoffee.com, Fill up your cart with whatever in the hell you want to get, including the world's strongest coffee. Uh, you can, at checkout, enter the code FuelYourFandom and get 10% off, thanks to the incredible Jeff, who was a, a hell guest of a deal. Of podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it really is awesome coffee. I hate to keep harping on that because it sounds like they're, um, you know, maybe uh, giving us a little bit of money here, but, uh, you not know, we're not getting any promotional consideration. We just really believe in the coffee. Absolutely, I've been drinking it for years, and and but it's re- it's really nice to work with a brand that you know and and trust, and you're a fan of yourself. So it, it's neat to have that kind of synergy. I like that. Yeah, it really is. And the fact that uh, his podcast is called Fueled by Death, and ours is Fuel Your Fandom. It was just nice to have a uh, double shot of fuel. And and the fact that you know, even though he's he's working for uh, a kick-ass coffee company, his podcast uh, aligns with ours pretty nicely. They they talk about a lot of uh, geek stuff over there. So, uh, you know, just a, yeah, a nice moment of uh, of collaboration with, with the folks over at Death Wish. It was a really fun talk. Because it's all part of the plan. Couldn't ask for anyone nicer either. He was really cool. So, uh, everybody, get off your butts. Go to uh, deathwishcoffee.com. Pick up some stuff. Throw it in your cart. Enter code fuel your fandom and save ten percent. What a deal! Good times and good coffee. Jim, how you doing this week, man? You know I'm good. Um, it's been a little tumultuous. Uh, some stuff going on lately that I uh, really don't want to talk about. Probably shouldn't talk about. Won't talk about. But I don't mean to be cryptic. It's just some up and down stuff. Nothing to do with anything. But um, you know, still, it's it's uh, it's been uh, an interesting couple of months. Um, but things are starting to settle down a little bit. And, uh, I'm, I'm, even though I'm not looking forward to fall, that's the thing I think more than anything that's kind of overwhelming me a little bit, uh, you know, here in, uh, Southeastern Wisconsin, uh, fall is lovely. Uh, summers do tend to be warm, pretty humid. Um, and again, I'm talking about the weather. I don't mean to keep doing that. How's the weather up there? But fall is just one of those things that <laughs> even as a kid, I never really look forward to it because, uh, A, I hate football and you know, this is Packer country and it's all anybody fucking talks about. Uh, but also because as lovely as fall weather is, as much as I like things like haunted houses and hay rides and, you know, cups of cozy coffee and hot chocolate and spiced apple cider and bonfires and stuff like that, it's all fun. It's all Midwestern culture stuff that people do around here. Um, you know, fall is just a really tough thing because uh, the winters around here are so brutal. And it's hard to enjoy fall knowing that uh, as soon as fall blows out, you got to deal with winter right on its heels. And winter tends to be long and cold and snowy and and uh, just really tough to deal with. So it uh, definitely tempers my enjoyment of a, a much milder season. I sort of look more forward to spring than I do to fall, but, uh, you know, it's yeah, okay. I'm, right it's okay. I'm, I'm a spring yeah. myself, so. Yeah, I'm I definitely a spring it. guy. But, you know, uh, all things considered, any day on the right side of the dirt is a gift. And, um, <laughs> you know, I have uh, video games and music and movies and all that kind of wonderful geek shit to keep me company and to keep me inside during the winter. So all things considered, it's not going to be too bad. How you doing? Oh, agreed. Uh, I'm doing all right. Uh, tail end of a cold, a head cold that I had going on for like a week, and it's been kicking my ass left, right, down, and sideways. But you know what? I'm feeling better, and Good. hopefully uh, on the uh, upper swing of that. So I did manage to get in the mail one of the uh, arcade cabinets that uh, I have uh, been waiting for from uh, our good friends over there, Shiloh Prychek with New Wave Toys. And uh, so 1942 came in yesterday, and uh, it is, it's beautiful. The thing is great. It's the shorter, stubbier cabinet. It's got, like, wood grain paneling all around it and everything. It's just gorgeous. It's 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 fantastic. Yeah, Shiloh and the crew don't miss a trick. They put out really good products. And it's, again, like, just like Deathless Coffee. They're not paying us just to, to pimp their stuff, but it's just that good, and we love it. So we always try to give them a, a nice shout whenever something really cool comes down the pike. Absolutely. That's why we picked the companies we picked to to talk to, because these are people that we believe in. So, 
That's right. But yeah, it's it's beautiful. It's a thing of beauty. And then uh, for my birthday, I also ended up getting. Uh, I collect those little uh, classic console systems, like the NES Classic, Super NES Classic. The yeah. I think I, I think I have like the uh, the Commodore sixty four Classic, which is a bunch of old like sixty Commodore sixty four games and stuff like that. And so uh, my wife uh, picked up for me. It's been on my my. Uh, my uh, list on Amazon forever, but it's the uh, Japanese version of the NES Classic. Uh, it's the uh, super, or the regular Famicom. Uh, so Famicom Classic, it kind of it has the same like thirty games on it. Twenty five of them are absolutely the same as the NES Classic, uh, except in Japanese. And uh, then there's another five additional games that are Japanese specific releases. It's beautiful. It looks just like a little tiny uh, Famicom, and it's. It's it's fantastic. I, I love it. Family computer. So, ended up getting that for my birthday and everything else. So, uh, a good time. A good time to be a video game collector. Getting older ain't always awesome, but if you can get cool stuff to add to your collection, then uh, why not? All things considered, it's it's uh, it's a good day. Absolutely. So uh, now, one of the funny things is is we uh, we were talking to Jeff, the incredible Jeff. Uh, about a lot of geek uh, culture stuff, and, and it ended up being a really deep and super cool conversation. Uh, what many of you may not know is that we actually did have a conversation in the works. We had a, a, a topic lined up, and it, it, that has hardly ever happened on this podcast, where we get into a conversation so thoroughly that we just kind of waylay the topic entirely, and we just didn't get to it. And then yeah, that's... we went off on, on, on <laughs> comics and video games and all this great geek stuff, and then we talked about coffee, and we just never actually managed to get around to the thing we were going to talk to Jeff about. Right, and, and, and so we legitimately had a topic lined up. When we talked to him, we are like, hey, do you want uh, just to just be an interview? Do you want you know a topic? Do you want to do this, that, or the other thing? And he's like, no, man, I want the full experience. And and by God, we had planned to give it to him, but it just, we, we lost the thread. We lost the plot. It went away without us. So what we had intended to talk about with the incredible Jeff, and now we're just going to kind of talk about it between ourselves here and, and with you, our audience. Uh, I had thought about talking about, now me and, me and Jim have been having this conversation back and forth about uh, material that may or may not be uh, socially acceptable. Uh, to listen to, to watch, to read, to to intake as a particular thing because of negativism around the project in and of itself. Things like, uh, what have we talked about? We talked about like Michael Jackson and his music, uh, whether or not we could separate the art from the artist because the artist was so troubled, or like Bill mm-hmm. Cosby's comedy records, or like Kevin, Kevin Spacey's, Spacey's movies. Movie. Or... Yeah. And, and, and what really brought that back up to the front for me was uh, just a a few days ago, as we record, uh, the jury handed out guilty verdicts along the line for R. Kelly and his whole crew uh, involving Rico predicates and everything. I mean, this dude's going down. They're treating it like an organized crime. Yeah. And And rightly so, really. Well, right. They're saying it was because... uh, there was such a meticulous organization to uh, swindle and get into these kids and, and just... Uh, I, reading it is, is enough to give you just the will to punch people for sure. But Yeah, and as much as I, I don't want to harp on this or, or beat this dead horse or bring it up, uh, for those of you that don't know, in case you haven't listened to the podcast before or you're not actually a friend of, of, of Kev's or mine... Um, he and I met as uh, uh, vigilante activists um, working for a an anti-child predator organization years and years ago, the uh, the Perverted Justice Organization that worked with Dateline NBC on the To Catch a Predator series. How you doing? All right. Do you have a seat over in that chair, please? So, you know, uh, kids being exploited is a uh, something that we bonded over pretty early. Um, okay, that sounds terrible. Being against <laughs> kids getting exploited is something we bonded over pretty early. But I'll take that shit out of context. We, you know, we, we're very, you know, you're a dad, um, you know, and I, I just, I don't want to see kids get hurt. And about 20 years ago, that's how we uh, originally connected. And, and so it's something that's, that's very near and dear to our hearts, just making sure that, you know, it's, you shouldn't have to come out and state, hey, I'm against kids getting exploited or molested or, or, or assaulted. 
Uh, right. You know, but um, still, watching the whole R. Kelly thing play out, uh, I know we both, as much as, you know, objectively, some of his music is pretty great. Uh, it, it just kind of gets nullified a little bit, um, you know, when you hear some of the heinous and terrible things that he did, you know, or does it? And again, that's that's the kind of thing that, yeah, as far back as, like, I think the Sparkling Consequences episode, which is one of my favorites, um, you know, we sort of talked about, how do you separate the art from the artist? If there's something that you enjoy, whether it's a movie, an album, or uh, you know, a, a body of work, if it's R. Kelly, if it's Michael Jackson, if it's Kevin Spacey, if it's whoever, uh, even like Phil Spector or Jeffrey Jones or, or any of these uh, people that turned out to be super problematic or violent or, or uh, you know, sex monsters or whatever it is, how do you continue to, or can you even, continue to enjoy the work that they did, whatever body of work, their oeuvre, or whatever it is, uh, if you if it came out later that they're just an absolute garbage human being? Where do you draw the line on that? Is, is it okay to continue to like the stuff they did before? How does it play in? Does the timing work out? I mean, because obviously he was making these recordings and putting out these hits as he was doing these horrible things. You know, right. how much does hindsight being twenty twenty factor into how much you should feel okay to still enjoy the work of an artist who's turned out to be a horrible person. Yeah, and and I've one of the biggest ones for me to kind of try and tackle that issue is uh is always going to be Michael Jackson. Now, I grew up in a family yeah. that we 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 love Michael Jackson's body of work. Uh my mom is a huge fan, my sister and I were huge fans. Uh just we really enjoyed the music aspect of it and the performance aspect of it. He was very uh he was a showman. I mean, and that's yeah. what Michael Jackson did. And it wasn't until we grew up and realized just the... Uh, I mean, and this is certainly not any effort to uh, forgive him for what he may or may not have done. But uh, we got to see just kind of what terrible upbringing he had as far as what he was subjected to by Joe Jackson and, and this push for fame and, and all this and the mm-hmm. childhood he didn't get to have, this, that, or the other. And the all abuse. sounds like... Yeah, it sounds like excuse mongering, and it's absolutely not. But I figure that's one of the harder ones for me to let go of because I grew up uh, surrounded by this catalog of music that anymore. Yeah. I mean, even when I listen to it, I still enjoy it. I, I will. I will admit that I still enjoy his music. He's very talented, but it's got this this pallor to it, this shine yeah. to it that is just kind of impossible to overlook. So. It really is. And, you know, it sort of also gets into identity politics a little bit because, you know, like you said, excuse mongering, one of the things that, that he came up with in his own defense, which I kind of looked at as being a weak defense um, and still really do, is he said that he had always viewed himself as a child because of his arrested development, because of the, the fact that he never got to have a childhood. He was pushed to perform. He was pushed to produce. Um, he was really a baby in front of television cameras on on. Uh, um, soul train and and uh doing all the motown stuff and and uh so and and the horrific abuse that you know it wasn't just alleged by him but also all of his brothers and sisters who also were kind of pushed into this showbiz lifestyle but what he said was because i never got to have a childhood i still identified as a child inside and therefore i didn't view any sexual experimentation that i engaged in with children as being problematic because you know little kids are curious about their bodies and sometimes they do that kind of stuff amongst themselves and with each other and I think that was kind of a horrible thing to say, um, sort of like on, on par, I think, with Kevin Spacey coming out and saying that, uh, yeah, maybe I actually was inappropriate with people who were underage, but I'm also gay, and that was problematic on several levels. First of all, because yeah. there have been, for, for many, many years, uh, people who are, are bigots and who are homophobes have tried to equate homosexuality with pedophilia, and there's just no correlation. So for him to draw that parallel was inexcusable, but also to use that sort of thing as an excuse for why he did the things he did or allegedly did or even admitted to or was kind of drummed out of the entertainment industry for. I kind of view that as, you know, Michael Jackson's uh, thing too, because obviously we're in an era now where everybody should be allowed to identify however they feel inside. You know, we don't, uh, there are people who are transgender, there are people who are non-binary, there are people who have uh, gender and sexual identities that, that don't conform to things that we have traditionally viewed as a societal norm. And that is fine. That is as it should be. Uh, but to use that as an excuse for why you've hurt somebody else, that really, I think, is is where you sort of need to draw the line on, you know, giving somebody else enough line to identify however they choose. Um, and I, I don't think I'm alone in that. 
So for Michael Jackson to say, hey, I still feel like a child inside, um, great. You know, you're in touch with your inner child. Yeah. Arrested development. But it doesn't give you the right. Yeah, it, it does not give you the right to therefore go forth and hurt somebody else based on your own trauma. That's just really, you know, trying to pay pain forward. And, and you know, pain doesn't, uh, doesn't, it just, it doesn't work that way. You can't get rid of it by sharing it. And for him to make that excuse um, was really just pretty weak. Um, and it, there's just, just, there really is no excuse for abuse, uh, for child molestation, for exploitation of children. There's absolutely no excuse for it, no matter how damaged you are, no matter how you identify. Um, so yeah, for me, I had a really hard time because yeah, like you said, you can't be a child of the eighties. You can't be somebody who was alive during that period and not, I mean, you, you, People were just issued a copy of Thriller at one point. It was the best-selling album of all time for a very long time. I don't time. remember buying it. I just know we had it. Yeah, it just kind of showed up, you know, like uh, in, in uh, Good Omens, whenever a cassette that's left in the glove box too long turns into Queen's Greatest Hits. Thriller just kind of showed up at your house. Um, and then, of course, you know, going back to the Motown era, going back to the Jackson 5 stuff, um, you know, the kid was a superstar for decades. And and so you really you couldn't escape Michael Jackson even if you wanted to and you know you're right to his credit the guy put out some amazing music um but it does have this 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 uh pallor over it now like you said it, it really does you listen to that stuff now and you know you, all you can think about is him hanging out at Neverland Ranch drinking Jesus juice with children and you know doing unspeakable things and and it really does just take the uh, the the enjoyment of that away for me. I mean, I have a hard time. You still listen to Michael Jackson, and that's perfectly valid. I have a real hard time with it. I, I don't have any of his music anymore on my MP3 collection. I don't have any albums anymore. Um, I just don't listen to it. I can't listen to it. Um, it it just, pops it, up every now and again on Spotify. It's like uh, I think the only time I really searched it out was uh, I've been listening to a lot of uh, Biggie Smalls and and yeah. Tupac records and things like that, and then I remembered at one point that he uh, had recorded a song with Biggie for one of his, uh, uh, like I think it was his history collection. Listen, I got problems of my own, flashing cameras, taps on my phone. Even in my home, I ain't safe as I should be. Things always missing. Maybe it could be my friends. They ain't friends if they robbing me. Stop it. And uh, yeah, and so I so there's some cross pollination there. To that one, yeah, for sure. But I mean, you even end up with uh, you end up with things like we've talked at great length about things like uh, Joe Rowling and and her ridiculous turf ass. Just yep. Once again, for those who don't know what that means, trans exclusionary uh, radical rather, feminism. T- t- radical yeah. feminism. Tra- trans exclusionary radical feminism, and basically, yep. you know, following the scientific biologic male versus female argument and and she's just she turned on her audience but that doesn't again i can't take away the fact that i read all of her books and enjoyed them i can't take away all the fact that you know i watched all the movies and thoroughly enjoyed them because we watched them under a certain kind of uh pretense yeah we watched them thinking we knew joe rowling as this one particular type of person this all encompassing and loving and 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 this character that she created and when in when in fact she uh was something quite different uh it was too late at that point i again i can't take back the fact that i enjoyed that michael jackson's music i can't take back the fact that i enjoyed joe rowling's books uh i can't take back the fact that I really enjoyed things like The Usual Suspects with Kevin Spacey. That was one of mm-hmm. my favorite movies for a very long time. Yeah, it's a masterpiece. And, and similarly, I one of my favorite. It's not Christmas in my life until I watch The Ref. It's a very underrated movie with uh, with Kevin Spacey and Dennis Leary. Um, Dennis Leary. Fucking yeah. fantastic tour de force role from both of them and Judy Davis. Um, just an amazing, amazing, funny as shit. Um, in this movie, uh, Dennis Leary plays a cat burglar who. Uh, winds up kind of falling into a booby trap while he's trying to steal some jewelry from this kind of rich guy in this sort of New England, I think it's Connecticut. And then he winds up taking uh, this this couple hostage who are just this, they're just the Bickersons. They, they, they're <laughs> so at each other's throats all the time. Insane. They hate each other. They're coming off, this Christmas Eve, and they're coming off of a, uh, a, a an appointment with their marriage counselor. They're just awful to each other. Horrible, horrible people. Um, well, okay, they seem to be horrible people. I, without giving away the movie, I'll say that. But he takes these these people hostage as a means of trying to escape notice from the police. And, 
and he winds up kind of being a guest in their home on Christmas Eve, and it's just, it's one of the funniest movies, and it's touching in spots, too. It's just a really, really good film, uh, but Kevin Spacey is very much in it. He plays the uh, one of the male leads in this movie, and, and it's one of his better performances, but sadly, you know, it's it's one of those things you just, you watch it, and all I can think about is, God, the horrible things that he is alleged to have done, and, and some of them he's even admitted to. Um, and there's a reason why the guy hasn't really worked in a couple of years. Uh, so it's hard to watch. Oh, it's a hard, more than it's that, hard to they get cut into his it. ass out of a movie. Yeah, oh yeah. Like he had uh, shot his role, and then they, they recast him after All the, the money in the world, and they, they cut him out and put in Christopher Chris Plummer, Plummer instead? Yeah. Yeah, who uh, was, was one of his last roles before he died, and he got nominated for an Oscar for that, uh, and should have. Should. I mean... It, it was a heroic sort of thing. I mean, for him to step in and, and it was not even just technologically challenging, but narratively challenging and, and a challenge from a filmmaking standpoint to just totally go back in after movie is essentially in the can and on the release schedule and completely replace an entire fucking actor who's a, a major player in the movie. Not right. a, it's no mean feat. And everybody rose to the occasion and made that happen in, in very grand fashion and with massive aplomb. So uh, good for them for that. But yeah, I mean, he's he's been drummed out. I don't know what he's doing for money now. I don't know if he's working at Trader Joe's or selling insurance. Not really sure. Hopefully, he invested well. Not that I wish him uh, you know any success or any comfort or happiness, but uh, it's that kind of shit. How do you get around it in your head, knowing that this person who turned in this performance or who made this record or who created this piece of art that really is great and that you enjoy and that stands the test of time turned out to be so downright, inexcusably, undeniably fucking horrible. Well, see, and we're listing some rather broad examples, and and these are the, right. the, the worst of the worst kind of examples that we can think of. But you got to go back and look at things like uh, uh, even going so far back into the uh, catalog of things that we love, uh, you know, movies that we grew up with, with problematic material in them. Uh, you look at yes. something like Porky's, or you look at something like uh, 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 Ghostbusters, Revenge of the Nerds, Revenge yeah. of the Nerds. Uh, there's you know, glorification of rape culture and. You know, oh, ha, ha, you know, making fun of transsexual culture or... Right, uh, I just remember the friend to watch a Galaxy Quest on the big screen today. A movie theater near me likes to bring back kind of classic and, and, and uh, older movies to give you a chance to see this on the big screen. And Galaxy Quest, you know, we're big Trek fans around here. And, uh, you know, along with the Orville, Galaxy Quest is one of the best non-Trek Trek properties that's been out there. It's a, it's a, a classic for a reason. Um, yeah, it's uh, Tim Allen and Sigourney Weaver and Alan Rickman. And it's, it's a great... XB for Trek, uh, but I, you know, it was only 20 years old. I think it came out in 99 or 2000, and I was watching it today, and I forgot that um, they drop an R word in there. You know, one of the characters refers to the other by the, by uh, a slur meant to denigrate mentally disabled people, and mm-hmm. you forget sometimes how casually you suggest that shit used to escape your lips. You just toss that off, and you don't really remember you know, how, how that was in your vernacular at one point, and then it, it really emerged that it was hurtful all along, and nobody ever should have been saying it in any context, And then, but then there it is. And yeah, you, like you said, like Revenge of the Nerds, you look back on that now, and it's, um, it at the time was just seen as being like a, uh, a funny romp, but the awful racial stereotypes in there, um, the straight-up sexual assault that happens on camera that's played for laughs, uh, right. the homophobia, it's, it's all just a big joke, and you you really do look back at it now, and you, it, it more than funny. It's just horrifying. Or one of my favorite movies when I was a kid, that I remember being funny when I was a kid was a movie called uh, Once Bitten. It was one of Jim Carrey's first roles, and yeah, he plays yeah, the a uh, one. a guy who's a kind of a tragic virgin. It's it's one of those kind of teen eighty sex comedies where he's constantly trying to get laid by his girlfriend. And Lauren Hutton plays this uh, couple hundred year old vampire who needs to dine on virgin blood pretty regularly to be able to sustain her youthful looks. And so she decides to uh, pick on Jim Carrey. And I guess you need to drink three times from the Virgin within the context and lore of this movie to be able to uh, to maintain your youth. So right before that third time, he convinces his girlfriend to sleep with him, which, again, is problematic in and of itself because of the coercion aspect of it. But right. there is another scene in there that's very, very terrible uh, where he's at, he plays a high school student and... Um, you know, his his buddies are trying to find out if he's a vampire because he's suddenly um, developed an aversion to garlic and sunlight and he starts dressing like a like, like goth Spidey in, in Raimi's Spider-Man 3. So they're trying to, uh, <laughs> because they've heard that there's vampires around and they got a drink from virgins and because the, the, the bites are said to happen in the context of sexual activity, they're checking his inner thigh for bites in the school shower. So because they're trying to, uh, to do a little pecker check in the shower, um, 
all the guys in the shower start screaming gay slurs and, stor- and storm out of the shower because obviously, uh, you know, gay is the most horrible thing you can be. And if you're even around that in the shower, it's contagious and you're going to catch gay and nobody wants that. And this was the mid 80s. And that kind of shit, you look back on it now and you forget these things happened in these movies. And like even I remembered a number uh, when we were talking about the, uh, the episode when we talked about problematic superpowers, I remembered a book called Vox, um, not Vox, no. I remember, it was by the author of Vox, uh, called The Fermata. I, 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 Jefferson, uh, what the hell was the guy's name? I don't remember. Nicholson Baker. Nicholson Baker? Yeah. And I, I recommended the book during the podcast, and then I thought, yeah, I'd, I'd kind of like to read that again, maybe. And then I went back and read the synopsis of it on Amazon, and I went to go maybe order the book for my Kindle. And uh, it talks about, a lot of the reviews are saying, yeah, this is a problematic book by today's standards because the guy in the, in the book has a superpower that he can freeze time and then move about freely within it. And all I remembered about the book was cool stuff like, they really thought about this because if he stops moving while he's got time freeze, he can start to choke because he's ex- you know, expelling carbon dioxide from his lungs. He's got to move through this fresh oxygen. If he's walking through the water, it kind of parts like toothpaste or like gel behind him because time has stopped. Those are the cool things I remembered about the book. What I didn't remember was the whole shitloads of sexual assault this guy would engage in when time was frozen. He would just violate all kinds of women when they couldn't fight back and when everything... And I I didn't remember that. I blocked it out. So I had to come back on the next episode and apologize. Hey, you know that book I talked about being so cool with how it thought about what the real-life implications would be of of freezing time and moving around within it? Uh, Yeah, don't actually read that. Don't give that guy a fucking red cent because it's just full of sexual assault. This is the shit I didn't remember. And then you watch or you read or you listen to these things years later... And even if the actual artist who created them is not seen as problematic now because of abhorrent or, or, or shitty behavior in the interim, you sort of like revisit these things and go, oh, Jesus. And, you know, again, it came out again recently when uh, the, the It movies came out. And you remember that even a guy like Stephen King, whose altar I worship at, I think he's one of the best contemporary writers alive. But he right. put in this entire like orgy scene with, uh, with the Losers Club and where they all had sex with Beverly. And they were all 12, 13 years old. And obviously they didn't put that in the movies. And it's one of those things that, you know, Stephen King has even said, if I could go back and take that out, I definitely would. But it should have been in there to begin with. So it's this kind of shit. Like you said, you go back and you look at these pieces of entertainment that you remember enjoying. um, But maybe you sort of just blocked out the problematic parts and didn't remember that they were there. I know that happens with me. And then years later, you kind of maybe revisit these things. and You go, oh, shit, how did I remember or how did I not remember that was in there? All right, and it is really ever present. I mean, it's it's yeah. as our attitudes change, as we mature as people, as we mm-hmm. move forward through things like the civil rights movement, or the sexual revolution, or the Me Too movement, things like that. As we push forward and advance, we're going to see some things that we maybe didn't recognize as being problematic crop up and be yeah. problematic. We're going to see things like, you know sexual assault or the use of the r word or or gay homophobic slurring uh being thrown back in now i watch a lot of uh i've been re-watching the sopranos lately because i wanted to watch and i watched this today i watched the many saints of newark today which is the yeah. sopranos movie that they released the prequel yeah. and yeah and and there's just there's a line i think and, 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 and I think that it's really difficult to spot because when you're watching a period piece, you're going to yeah. still see a lot of that. Ugh, I don't even know how to explain it. Like uh, when you watch The Sopranos, you're going to see a lot of uh, homophobic slurs. You're going to see a lot of things like uh, ethnic slurs and, and things like that. You're going to see a lot of these things that, yes, we can identify as being problematic now. And, and, and for sure, they're going to know that they were problematic when they were filmed. But because it's a period piece and they're trying to take an accurate uh, feel of this period, mm-hmm. you're going to get a lot of things. Like like James Gandolfini, as far as I know, was not a racist, was not a sexist, was, was a pretty decent human being, all told. Yeah. Um, but the the things uh, that they make Tony Soprano say and do and and be are abhorrent. He's an uh, anti-hero character. They got to have some of that in there. They don't want you to uh, identify too. They did the same thing with with Walter White on Breaking Bad. They do the same thing with uh, 
any any hero or anti-hero character who can't really be fully seen as being totally good or totally bad. You don't you you maybe sympathize with them, but you don't want to identify with them too closely. So every once in a while, they just got to throw in a nice little bomb of oh, that's right, he's a mobster. Oh, that's right, he's he's a, a drug dealer. They have to kind of do that stuff so that you don't ever really forget that this protagonist that you're identifying with is a flawed person and has a lot of things that you probably shouldn't emulate. Right, and and what I'm trying to draw a picture here is is this. There's a difference between things like that that are set in there to uh, a specific period that are meant to be a relic of their time uh, versus mm-hmm. things like uh, like in Ghostbusters, the, the sexual exploitation in Ghostbusters or, you know, uh, Porky's or, you know, Revenge of the Nerds and things like that that were not necessarily relics of their times it was just stuff that we didn't think about back then because har 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 whatever not but uh as we advance as a culture as we advance as in our way of thinking in our way of acting in our way of embracing the world around us i think it's going to get a lot more noticeable I guess Mm -hmm. there's always going to be points where we're going to need to see this kind of interpretation on the screen so that we can internalize it so that we can struggle with it so we can identify it. But at the same time, I I think, I don't know. I I think it's going to be difficult for us to uh, see it and not understand that it's there on purpose. It's going to, I think, I think it's going to be, less accidental if that makes any sense i I mean i'm struggling with a way to identify and and say what i want to say but i think it's going to be less accidental in the media that we bring in uh it's going to be something that we know is there for a reason or know is there uh it has a narrative purpose time right a narrative purpose but it's difficult because again there's a lot of movies that we grew up with there's a lot of material that we grew up with that just does not hold up because yeah, of it's that. kind of surprising. You, you go back and you watch things, and it's whenever something doesn't have a disappointing moment, I'm actually kind of relieved. I, I just recently rewatched um, the uh, the Indiana Jones trilogy, and it is a trilogy. Mm-hmm. Fuck you, Crystal Skull. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm glad you brought this one up because I was just thinking yeah. this exact thing. Go on. Right. So uh, you know, apart from maybe some cultural exploitation. Um, you know, especially where they're like trying to, to make fun of people. Well, Maybe. okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, for the most part, I mean, for a movie that was set in the forties, uh, it's it's less problematic than many things that were produced in the era. Um, you know, uh, you obviously there's uh, oh look, these savages eat monkey brains. That's a problem. Or these other guys are you know tearing hearts out in this rich. You know, it was played for um, villainy, so it was kind of supposed to be there. It was kind of a little bit of foreshadowing, like these are not good people. Um, but it really was you know sort of culturally insensitive um, in a lot of ways. These people are savages. They're having these rituals, whatever. But I mean, for the most part. Um, aside from some of these things that were intentional to portray certain people as villains, and I, I, I kind of like stopped just short of saying portray the culture as villains, because obviously there's a whole culture of people surrounding the settings in these movies that are not portrayed for uh, being these awful people. These are these are outliers. These are, are um, people that are, are not normal within their culture. So right. I think that maybe helps the division. But, you know, those still hold up. You can look back on them as, as not being as awful as maybe some other things that were produced during that period. Um, I think they were a little more self-aware than, than some of the other things that came out then. But it really is kind of a, a, a weird feeling to watch some of these movies and, and get through them unscathed by not having to step back and say and wince a little bit. Like, oh, that's a thing that was a relic of the 80s or the 70s or whenever it was. You couldn't get away right. with that now. Um, but then well, the, the reason other... that I was thinking of uh, Indiana Jones before we brought her off of this is because if you yeah. think about uh, one of the key characters from Fu Crystal Skull, but also uh, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, was Marion Ravenwood. Mm-hmm. And Marion Ravenwood, they explained. Oh, I forgot this. That Indy and her had a thing when she was, I think, fourteen. Mm. Yeah, you know very, what? I forgot about that. Very underaged. And, and it was alluded to in, to in the pub in Nepal. I was a child, and I thought I loved you. Right. Exactly that. And and it's just a throwaway line, 
mm-hmm. and again, I want to say that it's a, a product of the of the culture that we were immersed in back then. But at the same time, oh my God, super problematic now. Yeah, you know what? Now. I'd forgotten about that. I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> but so, like, <laughs> you go back and you look at this, and it's like, yeah, even these movies that you know you think are untouchable. <laughs> If they've been around for any length of time, there's going to be some shit in there that's probably going to be problematic. I mean... Well, and then you've got, like, uh, what is it, um, uh, Disney Plus, when they stream certain cartoons. Um, they have to put a disclaimer in front mm. of them saying, hey, this is a product of a certain era. I mean, a there Dumbo. are obviously some very... Fi- yeah, Dumbo with the crows. Or, um, you know, when they do Fantasia, where there's uh, one centaur that is, is seen to be subservient and happens to be black and have Bantu knots in her hair, and she's kind of waiting hand and foot on the others. Or Disney would really prefer to pretend that Song of the South really doesn't exist. Um, but these are things that are products of their time, <laughs> you know? And even, um, oh gosh, I, you know, Warner Brothers does the same thing a lot of the time. They are airing cartoons a lot. I don't remember in what context. I think on HBO Max, there's some Warner Brothers stuff, because I think Warner owns HBO. And um, things like uh, oh, Bugs Bunny nips the nips, which was an incredibly anti-Japanese oh, yeah. war, yeah. you know, designed to sell war bonds or whatever it was, or, or even um, Donald Duck. Uh, that's again back to Disney, but like the Fuhrer's face, um, which was anti-war <laughs> at the time, but contains some pretty problematic imagery that where where Donald's got his little swastika and tiny toothbrush mustache on, and he's doing Hiles on the screen, that kind of stuff. I mean, it really is an issue, but then you kind of also have to take intention into consideration a lot of the time, because we've made this point before, you could never make blazing saddles now, um, and, and any studio would look at that script and not touch it with a 10 fucking foot pole, but it still holds up because they're putting the hatred, they're putting the slurs, they're putting the bigotry into the mouths of the idiots, and therein lies the difference. It's punching up because we're not supposed to accept the thing that happens. We're not supposed to kind of breeze past the bigotry or the racism. The heroes of the film, being Gene Wilder and Cleavon Little, um, are the only rational people in the entire movie, and everybody else who is exhibiting this horrifying racism, it's being played for laughs and ridicule, but not at the expense of the marginalized person to their benefit. So that's why... Even though you you really couldn't make that movie now, it still kind of, you can watch it and it still holds up because the the racism is seen as being asinine, ludicrous, and to be mocked. And that's you know it's it's a it's a fine line, but uh, it, there there are certain things that that do still work in that context, but they they really have to be they have to have been done right the first time. They have to have had the foresight to be able to understand that attitudes towards sexism, racism, homophobia, transphobia, all the horrible things that we've had to deal with as a society the last God knows how many decades, centuries, whatever it is, those things are are, are seen as being as being bad. And, and that's really where, where the difference lies for me. So we have this classification. We've got the blatant uh, send-up. We've got the inadvertent send-up. We've got material that in and of itself might be harmless but performed by people who have issues. I mean, we can come at this from all sorts of different angles. I mean, there's yeah. no one way to do this. Uh, Harry Potter, by an, in and of itself, is a very open and accepting and loving and wonderful piece. There's nothing overtly racist, nothing overtly... you know, Even even in the way that they handle things like the house elf struggle and things like that, is handled yeah. very appropriately. And the fact it's that Dumbledore was was revealed to be gay, and I think book six or book seven. How do you how do you come out and then later on malign the entire LGBTQ community after one of your <laughs> most prominent and beloved characters is uh, it was was gay the whole time, and it was one of the least interesting things about him, and didn't even come up for a while. And then you turn around and you take a shit on trans people. I I, I don't I don't understand the I, mindset. I of that. don't. I don't either. Honestly. It's like, oh, that's such a brilliant stroke, a master stroke, a troll blaze just for uh, setting all those assholes on their edge. And then all of a yeah. sudden, oh, oh, you're one of them. Shit. Yeah, trans women aren't women. Oh, gee, You had to say it. You had to open your big stupid mouth and put your foot into it. Great. Thanks a lot for that. We all were behind you and you know, right, we really believed then, that you were somebody who, yeah, but then you just, uh, I don't, I can't. I just can't. And then, you know, music, Michael Jackson's music in and of itself was, was uh trend setting and trailblazing for what it was nothing yeah. overtly uh, negative about that in fact he tackled a lot of really strong issues 
uh, with his music and the way he I'm did starting it. with the man in the mirror. Doesn't matter if you're black or white. I mean, he, he you know, especially later in his career, he really tackled a lot of heavy societal things and seemed at least to be coming down on the right side of history in a lot of those pieces. And yet, here mm-hmm. we are. Uh, yeah. R. Kelly, uh, for a lot of years, has just been this wonderful music producer we've all thought might be problematic, but I guess none of us really knew the extent of it. And now all of a sudden, all the cards are on the table, and it's like, Jesus Christ. Racketeering, yeah. federal charges. I mean, this Sex guy trafficking, is... RICO laws? Yeah, it's ridiculous. Fuck. And it's difficult to, to know. I mean, I... I don't know what the answer is, Jim. I've been searching no. my brain trying to figure out what the answer is, is whether or not I should still be able to enjoy things like the Harry Potter books, whether or not I should be able to enjoy things like uh, The Usual Suspects or uh, Baby Driver or things like or that. Or Seven. Spacey and it's Seven. Oh, God. Yeah. These wonderful, Such brilliant... Such a great body just, of work. Yeah. And I don't know. I, I mean, is it, is it truly a case by case basis? Do we have to? You know, I go because I'm not going to go know. back and look at things like The Mandalorian and say right. that I hate it because of uh, of uh, Cara uh, stupid Gina Carano. I'm not going to say uh-huh. that her bullshit is going to ruin that show for me. It's not. Uh, no. So I don't know. It, does there's, it truly there's, have there's to no be case answer. by case? Well, you know, there's no easy answer, and I think it, for me, I, I, whether or not it has to be this way, I take it case by case, because I fully admit that I'm quasi hypocritical about a lot of things. Like I, I find that, and I, I think maybe it has to do with how much I enjoy the thing in question, which again, it's very subjective and very stupid. Um, like I like Michael Jackson's music. I was never like somebody who's going to buy a concert ticket or a piece of merchandise beyond an album. Um, you know, but it's fine. I mean, it was kind of a piece of the pop culture, and Michael Jackson is kind of like the Beatles, just one of those artists who everybody is aware of them, and even if they're not like a huge, rabid fan who wears the t-shirt and goes to the concert and buys all the merchandise and watches all the movies and whatever, you still, you know, sing along when it comes to the radio and you don't hate it. It's fine. Um, so it was kind of easy for me. It was an easy boycott to make, honestly. Um, but then something like Kevin Spacey, uh, even though it's for the same reason, it's essentially you know messing around with kids uh, on, on a sexual and inappropriate level. Uh, their offenses were similar, but I have a harder time walking away from Kevin Spacey only because like I enjoyed his work more than I enjoyed Michael Jackson's work. I still do enjoy the ref. I, I do admit to still watching that. So is that on a case by case basis? Does it make me a hypocrite? It probably does, and I, I fully admit to that. If 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 I'm going to walk away and wash my hands of Michael Jackson because he was a pedophile, and that's the thing, like. I feel like I got to make this distinction a little bit. Um, he was acquitted in court. However, even the jury, when they came out and were out of being sequestered and could actually speak to the press, I remember reading a statement from one of the jurors in the Michael Jackson molestation case where they said we had to find Michael Jackson not guilty by the rules of jurisprudence because the state was not able to, beyond a shadow of a doubt, prove in this particular instance that he did molest the child in question. However, there's enough other evidence of him having done this to other kids that were not actually the subject of this trial that we can't honestly say that he's not a a pedophile. Um, So even the jurors in his case had to find him, by the rules of law, had to find him not guilty in the uh, in, in the case in question, but they even said, "Yeah, we still believe he's a pedophile," so that's hard. Because um, yeah, we, again, it must be said that even though it's obvious that he was, and there were plenty of credible accusations, he was never actually convicted of it. But nonetheless, um, you still have to kind of take that into consideration. So yeah, I freely admit to being something of a hypocrite based on how much I enjoy the work of the person in question, whether right. that means I actually walk away or not. It's the same thing with like boycotts, with corporate boycotts. Um, I think a meaningful boycott is is one where you would otherwise enjoy the thing in question, but you make the conscious decision not to vote with your dollars for whatever company produces it to your own detriment. It's a meaningful boycott. Like, I don't eat Chick-fil-A, obviously, because they're giant homophobes. They actively contribute money to political causes that seek to relegate people in the LGBTQ community as legal second-class citizens who can't get married and can't adopt children and don't have any uh, the same rights as everybody else. They, they still do that. So I don't eat Chick-fil-A. But the thing is, the last time I ate Chick-fil-A was before I knew all this shit was going down, and I remember their food being pretty fucking objectively delicious. So that's a pain in the ass. That winds up being a meaningful boycott. Uh, same thing with, like, Jimmy John's. They make good sandwiches, but because their founder 
uh, is a big game hunter uh, and who also has very draconian hiring policies where he says that if you come and work at one of his restaurants, he makes you sign a, a non-compete clause that if you quit or get fired from that restaurant, you can't work for another restaurant in the same area within, I think, a 20-mile radius. I remember hearing that somewhere. Um, or they can take you to court for that because obviously you're stealing secrets or whatever. So those two... I, I like Jimmy John's, I like Chick-fil-A in terms of the, the raw product. Same with Papa John's, when he bitched about how Obamacare was going to cost him so much money, so he wound up cutting hours and cutting benefits for his employees, I stopped eating the pizza. Um, those are meaningful boycotts to me because I would otherwise enjoy the products in question. But when it comes to something like Hobby Lobby, you know, I don't really go to Hobby Lobby because they don't really sell anything I need. I'm not a crafter. I don't knit. I don't do decoupage. I don't do any of those things. So even though I don't shop at Hobby Lobby, that's not as meaningful a boycott uh, because they did uh, their Supreme Court case about uh, religious exemptions for, for covering birth control and women's health issues. They actually won that case, and, and it was proven that employers aren't, if they have a uh, dearly held or legitimately believed religious objection to, to covering something like birth control, they don't have to in their health care plans, and that sucks. So I don't go to Hobby Lobby, but that's not as meaningful a boycott because I wouldn't have gone there anyway. Uh, so I guess it kind of boils down to, it's the same thing. Like if Hobby Lobby is Michael Jackson, like it's, it's a thing that's fine, but I wasn't necessarily going to patronize it too much or whether it's Kevin Spacey being equivalent to Chick-fil-A where giving up on that is something that's, that's going to actually impact my life because I do enjoy what they do. Um, it gets to be, it's a really, you're right. It's an incredibly hairy, really difficult thing to parse out, um, as you try to like vote with your dollars and be a responsible citizen of the universe and try to try to be progressive. And, you know, I hate the word woke because it's used so often as a pejorative, but these things do matter. They do matter. And it's really hard to know where to draw the line sometimes. I agree. Um, I guess that's one of the things that, uh, that it's kind of the opposite side of, of everything being fandom. Fandom is everything uh, is, is that when you have a fandom that can be anything, you have to kind of be your own warden of your fandom. You have to decide yes. whether or not uh, your fandom can weather the storm. And I know there's a lot of Harry Potter fans out there that are still Harry Potter fans mm-hmm. uh, who disagree greatly with what Joe Rowling has done. Including Rupert and, Grint and um, Emma Watson and Daniel Radcliffe, Daniel who've Radcliffe, all spoken yeah. out against what she said. Absolutely. And... and, and, and it's up to us as the fans of these works to decide, I guess. Uh, it's it's really easy to say, I'm not going to go out and buy any more albums by X, Y, and Z. Because, I mean, I'm, we're, we live in a Spotify-based culture now. I don't have to buy an album. I just click on a playlist and let it go. And if it pops up, yeah. great. If it doesn't, great. I mean, it's, it's real easy out of sight, out of mind, that shit. But it's a lot harder when you're doing things like watching old TV shows or watching old movies or mm-hmm. or or reading a book or things like that where you actively have to seek out and go for uh, these things and, and decide for yourself, again, case by case, whether or not this is something that we can allow um, or not and why. I mean, it, it's, it's a slippery slope. And... and it's it's like I said, the opposite side of being this fan is 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 this work that you have to put in to kind of to vet your yeah. own fandom, to to be a responsible fan, to be a fan of something in a way that is meaningful and impactful. And I mean, because there's there's a, no part of me that's not going to ever stop enjoying Raiders of the Lost Ark or the Indiana right. Jones movies. There's not going to be a part of me that stops enjoying the Ghostbusters movies or like Stripes or any mm-hmm. of like, uh, like for instance, uh, Bill Murray's stuff, even though I know what a horribly problematic person Bill Murray is. Oh, God, he's, uh, he's on my permanent shit list. Just from the way he jerked around Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd about a potential third Ghostbusters movie. He was waffling for yeah. years. Oh, I'll do it if I get to be a ghost. Oh, I'm not going to do it. Maybe I'll do it. And he fucked around and then Harold Ramis died. So now we'll never get that. At one point I remember reading there was a draft of a script that was going to be 
the Ghostbusters basically pulling a Danny Glover and Lethal Weapon. And I'm too old for this shit. They were going on a job, and it was all four of the original Ghostbusters plus Annie Potts, and they come back and they take their proton packs off. And I, I read uh, that, that this was what the script was. And their backs hurt, and they're like, oh, we really got to think about passing the torch. So the third Ghostbusters movie that Ramis and Aykroyd wrote was going to be these guys deciding, well, you know, we're old now. Maybe it's time to retire. It's time to pass on the proton packs and, and, and get a new generation of... Um, of, of Ghostbusters in here. And I remember reading that Paul Rudd, Seth Rogen, Kevin Hart, and Melissa McCarthy were attached to be the four new Ghostbusters. And obviously we did I get to see Melissa McCarthy the as a Ghostbuster. Shit out of that. And the first part of the, yeah, me too. I wanted to see this movie. The first part of the movie was, um, the, the original Ghostbusters, you know, realizing they got creaky bones and can't really do the job anymore. And then they, they recruit and, and put ads out and train a new series of Ghostbusters. And then, you know, uh, Rudd, Rogan, Hart, and McCarthy go on to be a new the new franchise, the new Ghostbusters. And that was like uh, continuing the canon, continuing the story, picking up where they left off in the 80s, and passing the torch to a new generation, and letting them run with it. And Reitman was attached at one point, and, and Bill Murray was like, I don't really know if I want to do it. And then he just fucked around and didn't do it, and now we'll never see that movie. And Ghostbusters Afterlife is coming out, and that's why Paul Rudd got to be in this movie. Um, because he was denied the opportunity to be a Ghostbuster. So um, I, I guess we'll see what they do with that. But yeah, Bill Murray is another one. He's not done anything necessarily illegal or immoral, but, you know, I, the guy pisses me off because he's just such a diva. You know, I, I understand you only do the work you want to do, and you've achieved a certain level in your career where you, you don't have an agent, you have an 800 number, you do the projects you want, you're doing all these artsy-fartsy avant-garde Wes Anderson movies, and that's fine. You should be able to do the work you want, but... What I really appreciate about people, and George Clooney's talked about this a lot too. George Clooney, Julia Roberts, um, Matt Damon have all said that they, 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 they have this attitude in their careers where they do one for me, one for them. They do like a big blockbuster popcorn munching movie um, to, to make some money so that they can then turn around and then do a project maybe that they're passionate about, a smaller movie. They take a pay cut. They might do something that's not going to be a wide release film or that's not guaranteed to be a blockbuster. So I think that's a really mature way to look at it. You know, you maybe make two movies a year. You do one for me, you do one for them, one for the fans, one for myself. And I respect that. I really do. You should be able to do what you want, but I also feel like, and maybe this is going to be a problematic thing to say, if you're somebody who's on the level of a George Clooney or Bill Murray, if you're an A-lister, you, you do sort of have at least a little bit of responsibility to kind of give people what they want once in a while, and maybe that's shitty to say because, again, you're sort of locked into maybe doing work you don't want once in a while, maybe things you're not proud of, maybe you're taking a paycheck to sell out a little bit, but to an extent, Fat I think maybe... Yeah, big time. That that sort of is endemic. It sort of comes to the territory if you're that kind of a, a star, and they they kind of realize that. But Bill Murray just doesn't want to play ball. I didn't mean to go off on a Bill Murray tangent, but that guy pisses me <laughs> off. You know, he just really does. Like he he wouldn't do the Ghostbusters movie, and now Harold Ramis is dead. So fuck Bill Murray. I couldn't agree with you more, honestly. But again, yeah, it's it's this thing where we have to set aside. We we have to decide whether or not the. The thing that we're enjoying is worth the effort yeah. of putting aside whatever. Because, I mean, I don't really care for R. Kelly's music. It's not something that I've ever really sought out. It's uh, fine, but it's and, not for me. Right. Um, so that's not really, that's like, like you said, that's not really a meaningful, um, impactful kind of boycott. But, you know, I, I don't turn off a Michael Jackson song if it comes on every now and again. I don't actively seek it out or except for the one time i went to look for the biggie song but i mean there are things that i find it difficult to accept anymore and things like cobby lobby things like chick-fil-a i don't yeah. shop at those places i don't patronize them with my dollars but again with it something like uh ghostbusters or or anything like that that just has problematic content i have to wake myself up to the fact that this content is a product of its day and age and that yep. we've gotten better from there. We've, and, and I guess the idea is that we have to recognize where we've gotten better and when, and, and, and mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily make it okay or make it acceptable, but it makes it palatable, I guess. Is that, is that the right way to put that? Yeah. It, it definitely puts a, uh, a certain perspective on it that, that you do definitely have to consider. And on the corollary to that too, is that, um, for a long time, 
I was definitely a product of the just say no, this is your brain on drugs, Nancy Reagan, D.A.R.E. program kind of <laughs> 80s. And I grew up right. in a small town with a cop for a dad. Drugs are bad. So, you know, drugs are bad was just one of those things that was was a, a, an accepted fact in my universe. And, and then I put it away. But then... I had to have shoulder surgery and I lived in Las Vegas and it didn't really work. And after three rounds of opiates, they couldn't really prescribe me anything else for the pain. They told me to go to the dispensary and get myself a medical card, which I did. And that's when I discovered, Hey, I'd been lied to about cannabis for my entire life. Um, so that definitely colored my perspective a little bit because for and that, and that ties in for years, I had sort of cast a gimlet eye on any musical artist who was an open drug user. Um, I still enjoyed the Rolling Stones, but knowing that Keith Richards was kind of a junkie, not kind of a junkie, a massive junkie, <laughs> was an issue with me. Um, and I kind of, you know, had some pity and a little bit of, um, not contempt, but at least a little bit, I kind of looked down my nose a little bit at anybody from the 90s who had a drug problem. Um, you know, and well, and I was also bitter that people like Scott Weiland and people like Kurt Cobain and people like Shannon Hoon from Blind Melon and all these great artists uh, that made this music that I love wound up having such problems with drugs that in many cases it took them out. I remember reading an article in Rolling Stone during the 90s where Scott Weiland was snorting coke off of a gold record. And I remember thinking, well, shit, now I can't buy the next Stone Temple Pilots album. But the perspective that I've gained from understanding that, you know, uh, drug use is a thing that's a complicated issue. Um, obviously, the, you know, uh, cannabis isn't in the same category as heroin or cocaine, but nonetheless, we kind of have to really reflect on those things with a little bit more perspective than we used to. And especially if somebody died, I, I sort of regarded them as having like lost their battle with drugs. But now I understand that they were victimized by drugs. It's kind of that old saying like that showed up in, uh, in the Shining movie, the most recent, uh, Dr. Sleep, um, this maxim that first the man takes the drink, then the drink takes the man, then the drink takes the drink. And... That, sci that, that that perspective really helped me understand that even though I sort of was like, oh, Scott Weiland is snorting coke off his gold record, and maybe I'll think twice before I make the next one a gold record or contribute to that, um, now I'm able to see that that guy was a victim. The, 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 the drugs took him. He took the drugs first, then the drugs took him. And I, I have not pity anymore. I don't have contempt anymore. I have sympathy now. And so it, it definitely colors my perspective on that. So, yeah, you're right. The, the social mores of a given era... Um, the, the sort of perspective of a certain zeitgeist definitely alters as we go forward and learn as a species and a culture and a society. And so maybe things that were problematic once cease to be problematic or at least become sympathetic. And then things that, um, you know, weren't problematic previously now are. But having the ability to have the perspective of understanding sort of the, the issues and, and having a better viewpoint on maybe why things happened the way they did or why things were said or why certain things were acceptable and now aren't or vice versa. You know, I think you sort of have to grow as a person. You really have to take a step back and understand that, Hey, I wasn't who I was then. And these people aren't who they were then. And this piece of art, this, this product of its time is just that. And we kind of have to look at it from that perspective and understand that, that it was just a thing that happened and, and kind of, understand that it was it was problematic and we have to kind of move on from it right and again like i said it's 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 definitely case by case we end up seeing things like you know use of the r word or use of uh, homophobic slurs back in the day was just so commonplace blah 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 mm -hmm. uh it's one of those things where we have to definitely acknowledge it but at the same yep. time acknowledge that we're moving forward Otherwise, why we wouldn't even be recognizing the fact that they were doing that now. Yeah. Uh, we would still be doing it. And, and, and thankfully, we're not. And uh, <clears throat> I think now that we are able to identify those kind of perspectives, and, 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 and this is just for that one specific type of incidents, that we're, it's not acceptable, but it's definitely more... Um, we're easier, easier to get past yeah. uh, and, and look at it as a product of our times. And, and unfortunately, like uh, things like uh, uh, Kevin Spacey kind of get pushed into that category as well because it wasn't the body of work itself that was problematic. 
Uh, so it wasn't Michael Jackson's songs that were problematic. It wasn't R. Kelly's songs that were problematic. It wasn't J.K. Rowling's books that were problematic. It was the artist himself. And yeah. so that's the thing that we got to learn to get past or not. And and I think that uh, anymore, like we said, I, I think it's going to be a case-by-case basis. Yeah. Uh, kind of a choose-your-own-adventure, if you will. And I don't mean to sound reductive or like I'm trying to make jokes. Uh, this is a really hard topic to talk about. If you haven't noticed, yeah. we kind of been stumbling all over the place, just yeah. trying to get a handle on this thing, trying to get a, a grip to what is not only acceptable for uh, us as fans of a particular genre work or whatever, but also moving forward into the future, how that we, uh, how our approach to dealing with these things can. Uh, open it up for discussion or uh, make an impression on on the next generation of fans for instance who yeah. may or may not have the ability to separate art from artists so i think even acknowledging the struggle is probably a victory i mean that, that sounds hollow and it, like you said it sounds a little bit reductive to say that but i think even admitting that you sort of have to look at these things on a case-by-case basis and judge them based on that like and then in the case where it's somebody like joe rowling who's got this empire of books and also the movies, I'd be more prone to go back and watch the um, Harry Potter movies again, more so than read the books again, because the books were the work of a single artist. And if you buy a, a, a Joe Rowling book now, uh, you're putting money in the pocket of somebody who's a horrible person, admittedly a horrible right. person. But if you go back and watch the movies, that's not the work of a single artist. That's hundreds of people. That's actors on the screen. That's writers behind the pages. That's crew members who are working the booms, running the cameras, building the sets, making the costumes. So I think maybe canceling the work of an entire crew of people who've done nothing wrong um, in, in your quest to sort of like punish the one person who might have been involved with it who's a shithead, that might be a little bit uh, of an overcorrection. Um, so like if an artist, if, if a music, musical artist puts out uh, an album... Um, that they've written and performed themselves, then that's certainly your option. I don't want to patronize that. I don't want to support it with my dollars because I think they're a horrible person. But taking into consideration the, the entire, the enormity, the, the wholeness of, of how of who all helped to bring this thing to life, I think maybe that's one of the things I'll take into consideration going forward. Because, um, yeah, I mean, I, I enjoy the movie The Ref. I, I really do. It's a great movie. It's, a, it's my favorite Christmas film. But there were a lot of people in that that didn't, you know, have sex with any underage kids. So... I, should I, I mean, again, not that I'm paying anything for it. I've already bought the DVD. I already own it, but sort of not acknowledging that if I, or, or, or giving myself the permission to enjoy the work of everybody else in the movie and just realize there's this one kind of like, you know, shitty rotten apple in the bushel that I kind of have to enjoy it despite maybe that's a nice compromise. I'm not really sure. You, like you said, like we've said, there's just no easy answers to all this. That's why we talk about it because we kind of have to hash it out and figure it out. And going forward, there's, there's no real pat simple explanation for any of this shit. So I guess maybe evaluating things on a case by case basis kind of has to be the way to go because all absolutes are pretty much wrong. If you, you know, condemn, uh, every, you're no better than the people that you're you're looking at, Crooked, if you say, hey, I'm just going to make a hard and fast rule that applies in every instance, in every circumstance that I'm... If Y exists, I will not do X. Because um, then you're really sort of like broad brush damning everybody with the same condemnation, and, and that's not productive either. But yeah, it really is fucking sticky as hell. There's just no yeah. easy way to approach this or look at it in a way that, that is consistent, that makes sense. You really do, I think, have to just evaluate things as they come at you well and that's kind of where we're at with this we, we kind of want to know what you guys think if you've made it this far yeah. into this long rambly rant uh we first of all we applaud you that's fantastic but uh let us know what you think we definitely like we always say this is meant to be an open conduit of conversation we want to know uh your attitude towards um this topic i mean it, we know it's a sticky topic we know it's it's difficult to talk about we'd like to tackle the difficult topics from time to time like toxic fandom like you know things like this we want to make sure that we're having these conversations so that we fall on the right side of things we want to make sure that we are being responsible as fans so what yeah. do you guys think 
tell us what you think about uh, uh, fandom and whether it can weather these kind of storms and and how you deal with it on a case-by-case basis. Uh, you can hit us up on our Facebook group, which, of course, is uh, facebook.com forward slash fuelyourfandom. You can always send us an email. Uh, that is uh, fuelyourfandom at gmail.com. And the backup Gmail address is fyftalentbooking at gmail.com. That'll always get to us as well. That's also where you want to send your show suggestions, guest suggestions, especially if they're yourself, and your pie recipes. Uh, we do love those. And uh, you can also find us on Twitter at fuel underscore your, and we're also on Instagram at fuel your fandom. So we uh, we hope to hear from you. Absolutely, and like I said, we want to know uh, what you guys think. We want to know how you guys handle this because uh, for all for all we know, we're doing it wrong, and, and maybe there's another way to think about it that we're just not hitting. So we yeah. definitely want to know uh, where you guys come down on this. But uh, we want to thank you again for listening uh, to this uh, long winded rant. On the Feel Your Fandom podcast, uh, uh, keep your ears out. Uh, coming up here in the next uh, couple weeks, we will have an announcement, a formal announcement for the Fuel the Future charity donations. Uh, so you don't want to miss that. Uh, if you want to donate to that, of course, you can hit us up on Cash App, Venmo, or PayPal. All one word will get you there. Fuel your fandom. And of course, so. you can always find us where wonderful podcasts are sold. We're on Stitcher. We're on iHeartRadio. We're on Spotify. We're on, uh, oh gosh, all the podcast platforms. But if you don't want to wait, you can always find us also at fuelyourfandom.buzzsprout.com. That's where the latest and greatest episodes get uploaded every day, usually about 8 a.m. Uh, Pacific time. Um, so you can always find us there as well. Absolutely. So from us to you, we want to thank you again for listening. And do please remember, however problematic it may be at times, mm-hmm. everything is fandom. And fandom is everything. Take care.